everyone, whether they are a saint or a skeptic, an atheist or a believer, a moralist or a sinner, they all know that there's this problem of sin, of evil in the world. But what distinguishes truth from untruth, what distinguishes God's people, those whom he has redeemed and saved from all others, is that God's people know why evil exists in the world. In fact, they don't have to look very hard to find the black pit from whence it came. They only have to look to that old heart because it's right inside a person. This world is a dark, evil place because of us. We made it this way. It was our choice. So here, at the end of Romans 1, Paul the Apostle is laying out this hard reality, this dark reality of the human condition. It is not pretty. We saw last week in verse 17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is Christ. He is our righteousness. We are made right in our standing with God through Jesus. This week, though, he is going to show us another revelation of God, the revelation of God's wrath. He's showing us why we need that righteousness, because God has revealed his wrath. And so we begin where we see God giving a holy indictment against the world. As Paul says there, for the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this holy indictment then is the revelation of God's wrath upon the world. And that wrath of God, that's something that most people, even those who claim to be Christians, don't really like to think about or talk about. We'd rather ignore it. I mean, we like the idea of a God of love, of mercy, of peace. We like that. But a God of wrath? A God of judgments who condemns? Well, no, we don't like that. And it is the fact that we reject the idea of a God of wrath as humans in this earth that shows that we actually deserve his wrath, as we will see in this text this morning. But let us first think about that idea of wrath. What is wrath? Because when we talk about the wrath of God, the tendency is to to think about it in the same way we would think about the wrath of man or the anger of man. We hear that word wrath and we usually think of rage, fiery, uncontrolled anger directed at others. But you see, God's wrath is not out of control. It doesn't, it isn't God flying off the handle at humanity because he doesn't like what people have done. You see, God isn't affected by things outside of himself. He doesn't respond with emotions to situations that, that, that happen in our life like we do. That's what theologians call divine impassibility. It's to say simply that God is without involuntary passions. He, he doesn't just respond involuntarily. 
he doesn't suffer in the same way that we do. And so there exists then this, this fundamental distinction between the Creator and His creation, between our God and between us as His creatures. Now, we could ask the question, well, doesn't the Scriptures talk a lot about emotion, like God's love and God's sorrow, and as we see here, God's wrath? Aren't those emotions? Well, yes and, and, and no. You see, God, again, He isn't being controlled or affected by those outside motions. He is, after all, the great cause, the one who influences and moves all things according to his perfect will. Which means this, that God acts in the world. And so his love is not just, it's not really an emotion like we would think of it, but it is an action. It is God doing something for his people. And that is true regarding wrath as well. That's what Paul is getting here. God's wrath is an action against humanity for their ungodliness and their unrighteousness, their impiety towards God, and their injustice towards their fellow humans. And it's deserved. It's a very much deserved indictment. It is a just indictment against the world. And there are two reasons for that we see in this text. First of all, humanity buries the truth of God. Paul says that people in their unrighteousness, he uses the word suppress the truth. Literally, it means to bury, to to cover over, to put down, to hide. They're hiding what they already know to be true because they don't like the reality of that truth. And this really is the ultimate expression of cancel culture. I mean, why does somebody get canceled in society? Well, it's because... The, the popular culture, or at least the elites, don't like what someone else said and what they represent or maybe what they've done in the past, years and years ago. And so they cancel them. Well, this world likes to cancel God because they don't like who he is, what his existence means for each of us as a person. I mean, after all, if God is true and if he is holy and if he is sovereign, he is the creator of all that exist, it means that I must subject myself to him, that what he says is the ultimate rule of my life. It means he has every right to determine what is true, what is good, what is holy. And so... If we bury this knowledge of him so that we can create our own version of the truth about this world and about God, well then, no longer do we feel the weight of our own sin pressing upon us. And so when we see this, this hyper-individualized, post-modern world preaching that all things are subjective and relative, what we're simply witnessing is Romans 1 Verse 18, in action, unrighteousness, unrighteous man, suppressing truth, suppressing what they already know about God. For you see, what can be known about God in the natural world is not hidden. 
It's not something that's so obscure that you can't see it. It's not buried. It takes an unrighteous act from a sinful heart to bury it. That's the gist of of verses 19 through 20. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain. It's clear. It's obvious. Why? He says, because God has shown it to them. He's revealed it to them. And what specifically has he shown? His individual attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they, that is humanity, is without excuse. So within the very fabric of creation itself is stitched the reality that God exists, that he is almighty, that he is a creator. David sings of this, of course, in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. And so God's existence is not only seen in this world that we live in, but also his power, his creative power. We see his glory. We see the beauty of his design in everything that he has made, in everything that exists. I don't know if you've seen the images of that James Webb telescope that uh, NASA sent up into space uh, a few months ago, but they are astounding. They reveal to us the very glory of God. You cannot look into the infiniteness of space and say there is no God unless you willfully suppress that truth. I mean, the variety, the order, the beauty, the harmony of of all things working together say, yes, there is a wise and powerful designer. Furthermore, we see in the created world God's absolute right then as a sovereign, as, as a ruler over all things. For if he is its creator, he does then have absolute rights. So all that is God is is laid out plain and simple in the world so that the smallest of child can look upon it and behold and wonder who he is. And if you then claim that there is no God or the existence of God, your problem, as R.S.P. Sproul once said, your problem is not a knowledge problem. Because the knowledge is there. It's a moral problem. You choose not to accept it. And you are without excuse, as Paul writes. You know that there is a God, but you bury that knowledge because you'd rather it not be true. You've probably heard Friedrich Nietzsche's famous quote, God is dead. I know Chad mentioned it in Sunday school a week or two ago. And I wonder if you've heard the whole quote or actually read it. It's a startling picture of what Paul is saying here in Romans 1. 
He says, God is dead and God remains dead and we, humanity, as we, we have killed him. He says, how shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What has holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatest of this deed too great for greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Of course, God is not dead, but the point here is that humanity kills gods, the knowledge they have of God, willfully, ignoring it in their unrighteous minds, suppressing it, as Paul says, for the very reason that Nietzsche explains, so that they might become gods to themselves. That is cosmic rebellion. That merits the wrath of God. It is a just wrath. It is what we as humanity deserve. Which brings us to the second reason we deserve it. Not only have we failed to acknowledge God as God and suppress the knowledge of God that we see all around us, but we also fail to worship Him as God. Verse 21, Paul writes, For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now to honor is to esteem, it is to reverence. It's to acknowledge God for who he is, the almighty sovereign who makes all things and rules according to his perfect and holy and wise will. And thanksgiving is praise to God for what he has done. And so you have reverence and you have praise. You put them together and what do you have? You have worship, glorifying God for who he is and what he has done. That is what we were created for. That is how we enjoy God. As the catechism says, man's chief end is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. But rather than giving God our utmost affection and praise and thanksgiving for who he is, what has humanity done? They respond with pride and hatred. They worship something else instead of God. As Paul says, this is the the darkening of the mind. It is futile and useless thinking. It is foolishness. It is folly, as he says in verses 22 through 23. And indeed, idolatry is the height of folly. It's the height of folly to worship weaker things than the great God Almighty. So he says, claiming to be wise, humanity became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And there's a a deliberate progression or rather regression here in the apostle's words as he writes these verses. Humanity has exchanged the glory of God who is never a changing, immortal, all-powerful, all-wise for the image of mortal, always changing, weak man. But that indignity of indignities doesn't stop there. 
Because the worship of human uh, uh, worship of humans turns to the worship of birds and animals and creeping things, reptiles that that crawl upon their bellies in the dirt. And so there's this descending from what is the greatest, that is God Almighty, down to what is the lowest, living in the dirt. And what this is here is a reversal of creation. When God created all things... He started with the lowest of creatures, the cattle, all the creeping things, to the highest, the the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, humans. And then he rested on the seventh day, declaring this was very good. And the whole point was to show that, that everything in creation is beneath man. This is God's order, and man is beneath God. But the unrighteousness of humanity reverses that order of creation so that people worship the lowest of things as if they are the highest of them. Humanity buries what they know about God to be true and they fail to worship God. And for that, the wrath of God comes down upon the world. But that wrath of God shows up not in the form you would think it normally to be. You see, when we hear the idea of God's wrath or his judgment, we usually think of, especially as believers in the church, uh, probably of a future judgment, of, of, of the judgment seat of Christ when he returns as king and judge to, to make all that is wrong right again. And we might think of God's wrath like fire from falling from heaven or like the flood of Noah's generation. Now there is a final judgment and God did flood the earth during Noah's days. Those are certainly aspects of God's judgments. But what Paul says here is the manifestation, the revelation of God's wrath isn't some future judgment. In fact, it's already happened and it's happening right now. And nor is it completely a physical event like where the earth is dissolved in fire or drowned in a flood. God's revealed wrath, and this is the second thing we see in this text in verses 24 through 32, God's revealed wrath is simply this. It is God giving sinners what they wanted. Three times in verses 24 through 32, we see this little phrase. God gave them up. Verse 24, God gave them, humanity, up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. God handed over humanity or or surrendered them to what they desired. He said, you want that? Then have it. And it leads to absolute misery and suffering that we see in this world. See, the world became devastated Because it wasn't designed to have this reversed order of creation that we like to make it as people. So everything with the world became wrong because God in His holy wrath gave us what we wanted. We wanted to be gods unto ourselves. And He said, here, do that. 
And we destroyed ourselves. And what that means is that all people in this world, apart from the grace of God, are presently under the revealed wrath of God. They are under God's judgment. It isn't a future judgment, though that is coming, but it is present. It has already arrived. They are already suffering the consequences of their sin. They are already feeling the misery of their unrighteousness. So all the disease, all the emotional and mental damage, all the failed relationships, the broken homes, and the existence of violence and murder and theft and lying and adultery and cheating and corruption, all that sin comes as a result of God saying, that's what you want, here, have it. And it's so ugly. The first thing we see there in verse 24 is that God gave humanity up to impurity. He gave them up, as he says, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Specifically, he has in mind here sexual sins. It's interesting in Scripture, we see there's always a connection between making an idol of the self and the committing of immorality, of sexual sin. In fact, the very reason that many people bury the knowledge of God and worship some other aspect of creation is because they want to have this absolute sexual freedom for themselves. But that kind of impurity is such an affront to God and an indignity towards Him. Because what it is is people telling God, telling the Creator, we don't care about your design for human flourishing. We think it's flawed. We will write our own. And so the creature pretends to know better than the Creator. And humanity exchanges, as Paul says, the truth of God for a lie, worshiping and serving themselves rather than their Creator. And when you do that, when you fail to acknowledge the right of God over your body and you believe the lie of your own heart, you do not experience the blessedness of God but you find only pain and suffering. The second thing that he mentions that God gave man over to is in verses 26 and 27. It is for this reason God gave humanity up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchange natural relations for all those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now the focus on sexual sins here, particularly homosexuality, is meant to illustrate how unnatural our idolatry of ourselves really is. Because these kind of sins are unnatural. They go contrary to God's order. That's why he says here, women exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary to uh, nature. Men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one with one with another. What they were doing was unnatural, and he says they commit shameless acts. You see, there's nothing more contrary to nature than idolatry itself when you think about it. 
Because God has given us life, personhood, the ability to think and act and create and to enjoy this life. And so he, by nature, deserves our ultimate worship as we've seen. But instead, we worship ourselves. That is so contrary to nature, just like these sexual sins, particularly homosexuality. And what we see here then is God giving man over to dishonorable passions, particularly to shame or shamelessness in a sense. Because people do these acts of shame without feeling that shame. That's the idea. Now, Many think that that is something to be celebrated, that in our our cultural psychology, shame is pretty much now labeled as something evil. You don't need to feel ashamed about things that you do. But you see, shame is a gift of God in this sinful world to help restrain evil. And if a person experiences no shame, no guilt, they will do whatever they want to other people in order to fulfill the desires or passions, the dishonorable passions of their own hearts, as Paul speaks of here. And so what that leaves us with is people doing unspeakable things to other people in the name of their own pleasure and their own passion. Serial killers kill because they have no shame and guilt. And people abuse others and damage children and hurt women because they have no shame and no guilt. And so while homosexuality is described here, It isn't the only shameful act that Paul has in mind in which people engage to their own dishonor. In a world where there is no shame, we will hurt one another to achieve what we want for ourselves. And so no shame means violence and murder and theft and abuse. All have free reign because they're being committed to satisfy, to glorify What we feel is most important, myself. And so we cheat and we lie and we manipulate and we destroy each other to get what our dishonorable passions crave. And third, we see in verse 28 that God gave mankind up to a debased mind. Quite literally, that means a purposeless or a worthless mind. This is a mind that is set apart from God, a mind that has fully given itself over to idolatry. Because without God and his glory as the highest aim of one's life, as person is left to wander about in the wasteland of their own purposelessness. They don't really know what they're here for. Again, he's reiterating that that people have failed to acknowledge God. And when you do that, you fail to find any true purpose or meaning in life. We try to create it. We try to make it. But ultimately, all those desires, all those that that mission that we try to create for ourselves, that life purpose, it just feels so empty. It feels like it hasn't really achieved what it should have achieved. Because that's not what we were made for. We were made for the glory of God. And when you try to follow a life 
of purposelessness. It leads to so much sin and so many problems. Paul gives us a list of them in verses 29 through 31. Humanity is filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, it's hatred. They're full of envy and, and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. And people injure each other with their words, their gossips, their slanderers, their, their haters of God. They mock Him. They're, they're insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. They violate every one of God's commandments. And it sounds like an awful world in which to live, and yet this is the world that God has in His wrath given to mankind because we wanted it. That's God's wrath. A world filled with sin and sorrow and godlessness and grief. It's what we wanted in our rebellion and rejection of his truth and righteousness. And he he concludes with this hard reality in verse 32. He says, though they, though humanity knew God's righteous decree that those who practice all these sins that he listed previously deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They know the consequences, but they do it anyway. They know the sin in which they engage, in which they indulge in, deserves judgment. It deserves the curse of death, but they do it anyway, and they give approval to any who engage in those sinful practices. And that is why we look at this world... And we feel that evil. We see it all around us. We see that it is full of unrighteousness and ungodliness. That is God's present wrath upon this world. His cursing rather than His blessing. We rebelled. We refused to know Him even though He has made Himself plain in all His creation. And we buried that truth, and so we deserve this wrath. God gave us what we asked for. But while God has given up humanity, He has to what they wanted, He has not given up on humanity. You see, God promised purposefully to save a people from this very curse, this curse of sin under which we willfully live. While God gave humanity up to what they wanted, he also purposed to give himself up to rescue them. You see, it's not without coincidence that when you begin to read in Scripture this language of giving up, you begin to find it also in reference to Christ Jesus, God the Son, as he goes to the cross to save sinners like you and me. So in Galatians 2.20, Paul writes that the life that he lives now 
having been redeemed by God's grace in Jesus, he lives by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Literally gave himself over or up for me. And Ephesians 5, we read that Christ is like a bridegroom and his church is like his bride. And Christ in love gave himself up for her. And then even here in Romans, and later in chapter 8 and verse 32, we read that God did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all. You see, that's the mercy of God. It's him giving himself up for us. Jesus, who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. He took all this wrath that was supposed to be poured out and is poured out upon humanity and he took it upon himself on the cross though he himself did not deserve it so that we might be saved from this wrath. And here's what that means for you. It means if you are united to Jesus by faith alone, resting upon what he did for you on the cross sacrificing himself for your sin, you right now are no longer under this wrath of God that we see in the world. It is not your problem anymore. Because God's wrath is seen in giving sinners what they wanted. But God's mercy is seen in giving sinners what they need. God's wrath was poured out upon the world, but it was also poured out upon His Son so that He might save us from that wrath. That is the gospel. That is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. God's wrath was revealed because we asked for it. We wanted it. But his righteousness is revealed in the gospel because we need it. And so he shows us his never-ending mercy. That is our hope. That is our reality in Christ. We are not condemned if we are united to Jesus by faith alone, by the grace of God. But we are free from his wrath. And there is no longer any condemnation, no longer any holy indictment against us. We are in His children forever. That is our hope. That is our rest. And so let us look to that saving mercy of Christ. And if you have not done that, I would implore you, do that. Because you are under God's judgment, as Paul explains if you are not united to Christ in faith. God's wrath is upon you. But if you know Him, if you come to Him, Christ is the one who bore that wrath in your place so that you might be called a child of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven.
We do thank you again for your word and for this truth. And even though there is this dark, hard reality of your curse upon this world, we also know that there was the hope of forgiveness, of eternal rest, of having all of our sin, all of this unrighteousness completely washed away because Jesus was willing to bear your wrath, your judgment for us. So encourage us with this truth. And may we go forth in joy, proclaiming to the world that so desperately needs to hear of the mercy of Christ. For they are suffering, Father, under your justice that they so rightly deserve. And yet you and your love continue to redeem. You continue to save. And so, Father, we ask that you would go on with your work until Jesus comes. We pray this in his name. Amen.